Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Real Organic Project is a farmer-led movement that provides an add-on certification held by over a 1,000 certified organic, family-owned operations across North America. Real Organic Project strives to uplift farms working within the spirit, not just the letter, of organic principles. Real Organic certified farmers use practices that are centered around the foundational organic principles of soil-based crop production and pasture-based livestock agriculture. To remain accessible to all types of farmers, Real Organic Project fundraises year-round to keep this certification available at no cost to farmers. You can apply today at realorganicproject.org forward slash thrivingfarmer. That is realorganicproject.org forward slash thriving farmer. The current application season ends soon, so be sure to apply today. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today my guest is David Greenberg, and David farms with his wife, Jen, and many wonderful employees at Abundant Acres in Center Burlington, Nova Scotia. Growing on six acres with half an acre undercover, he and uh, the farm supplies fresh vegetables year-round from their two climate battery greenhouses. Their produce is sold in their Halifax store, the warehouse market. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm trying to remember, when did we actually meet? Because it's been a while. I think we met in 20. 16 or something at a slow food summit. Okay. I'd heard of you because I remember you came up to Nova Scotia for a greenhouse conference that I sadly missed and you were really young. Yes. I was very young at that point. A few years into farming in New York and you were people, you really made an impression. People were like this Michael Kilpatrick guy is really good at teaching. And yeah, uh, yeah, people really (laughs) liked you. So I was kind of keyed into this Michael Kilpatrick guy. And then, I knew you were at the uh, conference, the slow food conference, and I was sitting at this table and it was like, you know, people like Elliot Coleman and JM and all these like famous people were at this table. And there was this guy at the end of the table and you were just like asking lots of questions and talking to people. And then I kind of found out it was you. And I was like, oh, that's Michael Kilpatrick. Cool. I think that's the first time I met you. Oh, very cool. Um, And then you, and then I have been obviously bouncing things off you for years because you are doing some very cool things up there as well. Um, I think the climate battery is something we'll try to get into a little bit later because that's pretty interesting. Um, But you've just been really pushing, I think, the boundaries on a lot of things uh, with hoop houses, especially because you're located in kind of a little bit of an unforgiving location, especially for winter storms. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Give us a little bit of background of like how you got started farming. Oh boy. Um, I knew I wanted to be a farmer in 1978. My mother took me to the new alchemy Institute on a field trip. Mm. I was seven years old and new alchemy was the first sort of permaculture demonstration site in North America. I think it was. And uh, they had a, a greenhouse they called the Ark, which mm. had uh, rock cages with solar electric powered fans blowing hot air from the top of this large, you know, south facing north wall insulated greenhouse. 
They were mm-hmm. blowing hot air through rock cages and then releasing the air at night. And mm. they had banana trees in there and tilapia ponds and frogs and benches with greens with mushrooms growing underneath. And I literally just, that was my calling. I was like, this is what I want to do when I grow up. I want to mm-hmm. have greenhouses that store heat in the ground. I want to have tons of diversity. Um, we had this big lunch where the new alchemists invited this whole school group to uh, have lunch with us. And we ate tilapia from their greenhouse and greens and mushrooms and all this stuff. And it was probably like late March, early April. And I was like, this is the best food I've ever had. These are the coolest people I've ever seen. Like, I'm ready to move here tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, never really deviated from that trajectory. Now, was that more of a Chinese greenhouse, like half sunk into the ground, or was it actually like a a, a version mm. of the climate battery? It was very similar to a, cli- a Chinese greenhouse. It had okay. like a polycarbonate glazing, fully insulated north wall. Mm-hmm. Um, I do remember sort of terraces in it. Obviously, it's been a while, but if I had to guess, I'd say there was a terrace maybe five or six feet high along the north wall. Mm-hmm. with mushrooms growing sort of underneath this level and then water cascading all the different places. They were irrigating and fertilizing it with the tilapia water. Uh-huh. So it's actually kind of an aquaponic setup. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine how much it would cost to build a greenhouse like that now. Yeah. How um, big was it? Oh, to my seven years, seven-year-old eyes, it was giant. It was yeah. probably 20 feet deep and 30 or 40 feet long, maybe, maybe 50. It okay. wasn't huge. But yeah. it was magical. Yeah. And then, oh. I mean, they had geodesic domes with tilapia growing in these big, uh, you know, fiberglass mm-hmm. cylinder tanks with raspberries and kiwi fruit and who knows what just growing all around it. I mean, they were doing all kinds of crazy stuff back then. Mm-hmm. Very cool. It's amazing that, you know, people have been doing stuff like this for so long, but it's still not universally accepted or just not people don't focus on it. And I think a lot of it is because a lot of it requires very detailed planning and also more money up front. Yes. And it's, you know, you know, people say context is everything like, yeah, we probably wouldn't be doing these climate battery greenhouses if it wasn't for the fact that we had our own store in the city we have staff who live on the farm, some of them year round. And then we have a whole staff. And, you know, and, and then, of course, we have the staff in the city that we have to keep employed year round. Yeah. And so it's like for us, the benefit of having year round greens is huge. Yeah. And then, of course, and then we're also buying in a lot of products that we make a good profit margin on that we need to keep customers excited to come into our store. So having the greens, the, 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 it just multiplies so many benefits that aren't really that easy to pencil out. Like if you say, how much does it cost to produce these greens? How much yeah. do you make from them? You know, that's the thing about business that's so interesting is that you can sharpen your pencil as much as you want, but it's actually just inherently a holistic creative endeavor. And, yes. um, and you know, so for us, like we, I just knew, I intuited, I was like, we just, have these greens will sell so much more of the storage carrots and potatoes and the bread and the honey and the eggs and imported produce and everything else we do. And sure enough, as soon as we had the year round greens, it really helped. And then we kept running out and then we built a second climate battery greenhouse and had more greens. And interestingly, this year we had a weird fertility problem 
because we had salt intrude into our drilled well. We're very close to the water and we have a Ooh. drilled well that's like 200 feet below sea level. Yeah. And we had salt water intrude into our well and didn't realize it and severely hurt our uh, soil in our climate better greenhouses, hurting our greens production over the winter. So it was a very unfortunate but interesting marketing experiment because now we don't have the greens we normally have this winter. And sure enough, the sales of everything else are going down. So Fascinating. It's like, yeah, it yeah. really is the greens. Yeah. And now they're coming back on and we have tons of stuff again. And I'm like, oh, thank goodness. All right. So and, yeah. quick break, because that, that fascinates me. How did you rectify that? Did you have to drill a new well? Did you have to put in a big desaltination? No, no. We're, we're increasing our surface water holding capacity. Okay. Um, so we're digging more irrigation ponds and we're going, what happened was we were pulling this water out of this deep well and putting it into a swimming pool and using that for our drip irrigation because then we didn't have to change our filter a lot. Oh, okay. But now we're going to go back to dripping out of pond with pond water and just needing to clean our filter a lot more. Gotcha. And then we can mix the slightly salty water into our pond water if we need to. Yes. Um, it's actually, it actually has a lot of nutrients in it that we want. <laughs> it's yes. full of calcium and sulfur Yeah, and all sorts of stuff. Um, yeah, but straight up, it's just literally toxic to our plants. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. We're we're running it around uh, four grams of salt per liter. So, okay. Uh, salt water, I think, is something like thirty-two grams per liter. Yeah, just to give you, it's like ten percent salt water. So, how water. did that happen? Is it just natural uh, aspects in the soil? I mean, you're not they're not doing any yeah. fracking up there, which would cause that no. to. No, well, we're we're very close to a saltwater bay. Yeah. And also it's a 220 deep foot well, and we're, you know, half a mile from the ocean, not even a quarter of a mile from the ocean. And we're at, you know, 50 feet above sea level. Yeah. So, so, so that well is well below sea level. Also, it's going through a gypsum formation, which is a saltwater, uh, you know, an ancient seabed yeah. formation that has a lot of salt in it. So it could just be just like a brine pocket just got in and it got saltier. The yeah. well was always saltier. It just seemed to have suddenly got worse. Gotcha. So it happens yeah. in our area. I think there's fissures in the gypsum and ocean water just kind of gets into the groundwater. Yeah. So All it's, right. a, it's a very complicated. Yeah, geology absolutely. Really. Yeah. Fascinating. So let's go back to, all right. So you knew you wanted to farm. What were the, did you go to university for farming or kind of what was your education? Yeah. I grew up going to a radical free school where I was, you know, basically a feral little child. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> and yeah, started farming at school. Actually, I started doing gardens and stuff. And, and in my early teens, uh, I read Masanobu Fukuoka books when I was uh -huh. like 14, 15 years old. Um, that just totally fascinated me. Um, my dad was a bit of a hippie back to the lander. So we had chickens and a big vegetable garden and, you know, a Troy built rototiller in the early eighties. Mm. I, um, I think I made my first Johnny's seed catalog order in the very late seventies or early eighties when it was uh, two yeah. pages stapled together on mimeograph. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, I remember my dad handwriting out each variety he wanted calculating how much it would cost putting a check in the mail and then like a month later the order would come 
Um, I do I know, don't, don't I wish Don't I wish I had those uh, old orders? That'd be fun. Well, that would um, be fun. And the prices back then. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So I really grew up in that world very much. My parents owned health food stores. Mm, um, okay. So we were like driving around in a box truck in the mid seventies, picking up produce from different farms. So, um, yeah, so I definitely come by this naturally. I think I started doing inventory and stocking shelves at the age of four. Wow. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I figure if I lived to be a really old man, I, you know, I could have, you know, a lot of experience in organic foods. Yeah. Like yeah, I've been doing this for 95 years. You know? Yeah. So <laughs> then, so then with the farm, like when did you actually like buy the farm, start the farm? How did yeah. that come to, to fruition? Um, I actually married into it. I, I okay. met a woman and after we were together, I found out that her parents owned an organic farm. Okay. Um, yeah. And then uh, in Nova Scotia, I, I also, I, I wanted to move to Atlantic Canada since I was about 11. I tried to immigrate when I was 19, went to the Canadian consulate in Boston and applied, you know, said I wanted to move to Canada and homestead and farm. And they kind of laughed at me. <laughs> and then uh, four years later, I was married to a Canadian whose parents owned a farm. Okay. So that worked out. And uh, yeah, I've been, I've, I've left a few times to work in the States, but pretty much I've been living in Nova Scotia since 1996. Okay. All right. And uh, are you still on that same piece of land? No, no, okay. unfortunately that didn't work out, but I, uh, I bounced through a few different iterations of farming and life. And yeah, now I'm at a farm that I've been at um, since 2010. All right. So the one you're at in 2010, uh, because you had some previous experience with farming before that, did you spend a lot of time like vetting that property or find it very specific or is it just like the property that was available at that point? No, what happened was I was, my marriage exploded after 10 years. I kind of went through a major dark night of the soul, thought I was done with farming. And then Mary, uh, met Jen she had owned this farm since 93 okay and then i was kind of like i got i got together with her the the ownership of the farm was tenuous because she only owned a third of the farm with another couple um and then we got together we thought we were going to do something else besides farming and then we got married and jen's parents actually helped us buy out the rest of the shares of the farm and I, yeah, I really thought I was done with farming. Mm. And then she's really the one who's been the driving force in many ways of um, sort of making Abundant Acres what it is. Mm. And she always wanted to farm and she was working as an agricultural economist and doing contract work. And she said to me, look, if we kind of, and she'd just also been through a divorce and we were kind of mm. devastated. I would not recommend divorce to anyone, let me tell you. And mm. um and we were kind of like burned out and physically not very healthy, mentally not very healthy. And she goes, I don't want to do contract work anymore. If you're willing to farm, I'll give it everything I got. And mm -hmm. I kind of reluctantly agreed. And then honestly, year by year, the farm's just been blessed and I'm loving farming more than ever. And yeah, so it's, it's, that's, that's how it happened. And Jen bought the land just to homestead on. Mm. Um, we happened to she happened to luck into 
really good soil with one of the best microclimates in the province. Awesome. Yeah. So it's just a, you know, incredibly good fortune to be yeah. there. Yeah. And she's the one that keeps the blog up. She does the blog. She basically runs the business. Okay. You know, she, she manages the office. She does, you know, so much of what actually makes the farm work. And then, mm. you know, my specialty is, you know, helping her with running the business and then helping the staff do the actual production. Gotcha. Okay. So you're more of like the farm manager and she's more the business manager. Yes. I mean, we overlap a lot. And now yeah. that she has such a good office team, she's getting out in the field more, which is really nice. Gotcha. All right. So let's talk to, let's stop and talk team for a little bit because you've mentioned it a few times now. How many staff do you have? We peak out in the middle of the summer with seasonal staff. We'll have about 20 employees. Okay. All right. And how many? And that, include, and that includes marketing too. So okay. we really have okay. two, two separate teams, but then as many of the people as possible who work in the store, we, we try to get them out to the farm to harvest, mm -hmm. which is really neat for marketing. Absolutely. So they're actually get their hands mm -hmm. in the dirt and in the vegetables. Yeah. So then with that, um, how many acres of production are you doing? We're doing six acres of production. Uh, we're, we're sort of slowly expanding a little bit into more marginal land, which is another interesting story, but mm. generally about six acres of production. And then how many square feet in tunnels? Uh, around 20, 20,000 square feet. Okay. And those are Harnwa built tunnels I'm looking at. Uh, uh, yeah, there's, there's two different things going on. So we have two Harnwa oval tech, uh, threes, yep. uh, you know, one, 150 and a 144. 144 is uh, 32 feet wide. The 150 is 35 feet wide. And then we have um, we have these six tunnels that are 20 by 100 that are actually um, we bought from Dave Wolpen Enterprises. Uh -huh. And they're uh, it's one by three rectangular stock um, that are you know mobile field tunnels, but they're 20 feet wide. Uh -huh. So that's really pushing the design parameter of a caterpillar tunnel. We have framed out end walls too, because then we don't intrude into our crossroads that we yep. have in our fields. Um, so it's a little more work than a ponytail, but for us, it, it has a lot of advantages as far as access. And then also access in the winter when there's a lot of snow, we don't Correct. have to shovel off a ponytail to get in, yeah. which everyone knows is a world of pain. Yeah. Especially um, in the high snow areas. Oh man. Yeah. yeah. I actually yeah. think it would be really fun to do a podcast on literally just uh hoop house design because I think there's a lot people don't understand of um because I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the first caterpillar style tunnels, wasn't that Ted Blomgren at Windflower Farm, which was south yeah. of me? He was that the actual first one. He I remember seeing his website. And being just like, oh yes, I need one of these. Yeah. Well, yeah. Also, Elliot Coleman was talking about hoop houses at least around the same time. Like I built my first hoop house in 95. Yeah. And I was looking at the newer granite grower pictures and building yeah. a hoop house. Well, but the whole aspect of the rope structure making it yes. look like a caterpillar, that was unusual. Yes. And then That's the right. Well, That's and the right. thing was, is that Ted had just a rope running down his peak. 
and the ponytails. I think that was Ted's basically design, which it does work. I just, it really comes back to how much money you want to put into it. And it's always time versus money. I think that's the thing that we will always put out because that's why you, everyone typically eventually goes to her bigger greenhouses because they just, they're way more expensive per square foot, but they're way less work. Yeah. And labor is the killer. Yeah. Especially when, yeah, especially now what we're paying now is just, yeah, it's incredible. It's incredible. I mean, again, I don't, we have some great people, but it's also when you see those biweekly checks that go out for labor, you're like, oh my gosh. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Suddenly a few extra dollars a square foot doesn't seem like that much. Yes. So back to these uh, 20 foot wide tunnels, you've got one by three. It's more like a two, a uh, rectangular tube. And then does it have a purlin down the center? Yeah. So we do a few things. Um, we have sometimes put a ter- purlin right up through the top. Mm-hmm. Um, something we do that's a little different because they're 20 feet wide. We actually bolt on a rough cut hemlock two by four across. Okay. So we have a bit of a truss system. So we have a wooden two by four across that's running about seven and a half feet above uh, ground. Yep. So it's just at that point, you know, about two thirds up from the hoop where you need strength to stop it from crumbling in in a snowstorm. Correct. And then we actually use two deck screws and more pieces of two by four as our purlin. So we'll we'll run a purlin up the middle of those two by fours. So our purlin gotcha. is actually four feet down below. Yes. Still totally does the job. And we'll just, you know, scab those two by fours together with a block of another two by four. So it's cheap. It's super strong. Yep. It's easy to take in and out. And having that cross those cross pieces, of course, is awesome for trellising tomatoes. Absolutely. Um, also, yeah. we have forks on our bucket loader, and it makes a super handy way to move them. We can drive the bucket loader along a greenhouse and just uh-huh. tip each hoop uh-huh. right onto the bucket loader and carry, you know, and away it almost goes. An, almost an entire house that way. Um, yeah. With the cross pieces, talk about time versus money. We run our hoops six feet apart even with insane snow loads and have never, ever had a snow load problem. Um, in 2015, we got 12 feet of snow after March 1st. Wow. And then we had huge winds. We had some winds that drifted snow right over the peak of our greenhouses. And then we had massive rain and freezing. Yeah. So the weight per square foot on those houses was through the roof. We had no deformation of the houses that had the cross piece. Yep. And our plastic stretched a bit, but we kept using the plastic. And yeah, we were cropping. So that was a neat test. Yeah. Um, Now, I don't know if they would have held without the cross piece, but my guess is that it played an important role. Yeah. So if you go to abundant acres, abundant dash acres.com, go to the blog, scroll down to the gift post. There is a picture of both your style of tunnels. You've got the big Harnois with your standing by the climate battery, but then you also have a picture of inside um, uh, Colleen harvesting arugula showing the kind of design of that. So if folks want to go check that out, they can, but um Fascinating. So the, do you think the aspect of a three by one 
steel also take mm. case a, a key part of it as well? I do. I mean, I think um, so. This design, this was uh, pushing it out to twenty feet was yeah something that people told me I shouldn't do, and then um, Norm at Multi Shelter Solutions uh, had a, a twenty four foot wide house that was made out of one by three. Mm. And I'd been working with Norm for years doing greenhouse design where I'd give him ideas and he'd manufacture it and sell it. And I was like, I want to make a 20 foot house. And him and other people were like, that really seems to be pushing it. And I was like, okay, Norm, sell me a 24 footer and I'll cut two feet off. <laughs> I'll turn it into 20, but I want the 24 foot. Cause that was the, the first uh, width of a greenhouse he built that had the one by threes. I said, I okay. want it. Deeper. I don't want the one by two stock. I want the one by three. Yeah. And then when Dave Wilpin started manufacturing greenhouses, I was like, check this out. And he was like, yeah. So then he just started ordering tractor trailer loads of one by three for the 20 foot width. Gotcha. And, um, oh, and just it's, it's uh, for greenhouse building nerds out there are, are, um, our ratio of hoop to width is uh, 1.5 to one, meaning it's a it's the 20 foot wide house is a 30 foot long hoop. So when okay. you're doing greenhouse, yep. mm -hmm. that sort of the parameter is that tells you that ratio is how much snow shedding you're going to have, right? So the longer yes. the hoop is over the same width is the steeper your greenhouse. Yeah. So 1.5 to one is a pretty moderate ratio actually. correct like it's not super deep um but i find with that cross piece it seems to work for us of course the taller your house compared to its width, the more susceptible to wind it is right so yes you know <laughs> yeah so it's, it's it's a balancing point yeah Absolutely. So then you put in just rebar down at the, at the sides. Yeah. Yeah. So we do 48 inch with rebar and we, for, for the end walls, we spike a base plate uh, with rebar down. We put, uh, I think just two pieces, uh, four pieces of rebar down um, along the end walls. And then we frame out a door and do it that way. Um, and, uh, and then we do, we take, two 16 foot pieces of rough cut hemlock. And we use those as interior diagonal braces. Mm -hmm. And I screw those onto the end wall and I use like a right angle bracket. And yeah. I use like really big, like number 14 screws, making sure I screw them in in such a way that that just cannot come out. I kind of bend the bracket around the two by four cross brace of the end wall. Yep. I just screw that on, use that metal to really reinforce the angle. I found if I just screwed the wood directly to the wood of the end wall, it wouldn't hold. But with that metal bracket wrapping around at different angles and getting all kinds of purchase, that doesn't let go. And then I found on the ground end of this uh, interior brace, I used two pieces of rebar pounded in through the wood into the ground. And that has not let loose. And then I can, that's really nice to have that end brace not need to attach back to the pipes so that as we're moving these houses around on our hilly ground, it's going to hit slightly different every time. And we can plumb up our house and put mm. that end brace into the ground wherever it lands. 
and um, it's pretty straightforward and strong and yeah, cheap. Yeah. Relatively cheap. Yeah, that does really work well for you. Um, I have, what is the gauge of the metal of those one by three bows? Ooh, I'd have to ask Dave Wolpen. Um, yeah. It's, I'll say this, I don't know. It's on the heavier end. Like, like the one by two is much thinner. Gotcha. They're, yeah. They're, they're, they're beefy. Yeah. I would um, say. I could, I could get back to you on that. I yeah. Can, I can with Dave. It's interesting because we had some failure of tunnels here this winter. We've had some a very, very windy winter and spring this year, way more than any other year here. Um, we had 44 mile an hour winds the other day. We bought a new weather station just so I can actually start measuring this better um, because mm. I was like, I think it's this amount of wind, but I have no idea. So now we actually are measuring it here on the farm. Um, cool. But the 14 gauge greenhouses have stood up way better than the 17 gauge. Um because mm -hmm. what happened is when the steel prices spiked in 2021 or 2022, I think it was, we said, okay, well, we'll just get the same amount of houses, but we'll, the 14 gauge stood up just fine. Let's go for the 17 gauge and put cross braces. Well, yeah. I think the lighter steel gauge steel just does not perform anywhere near as well as the, the heavier. Yeah. Um, we had one, one house, literally the end the last three bows get smashed in like from the top. It, they looked like basically upside down lazy M's um, when they were done. Yeah. And, and I, I've never seen that before. And I think it's just the lightness of the bow. Now, granted, we didn't have bracing on there, which we probably should have. But in our area, we just, the snow loads we get, even with eight or 10 inches, which we had this winter, the 17 gauge bows did just fine. I mean, they didn't show the least bit of like collapsing but it was the wind that took them completely out. Um, so we rebuilt two of those, put braces on them, and then just had this 44 mile an hour wind. And the only damage we had is it was wet soil because this time of year we're sopping wet here on the farm, um, just moisture from the spring. And a couple of the steel re-rods came up out of the ground and four of the bows like slid outwards. And I don't really understand how those boat, those, the re-rod came up out of the ground. I have no clue how that could happen, but yeah. that's what happened. It happens. <laughs> I've yeah. seen it happen too. Yeah. So I, I just, I just texted Dave Wolpen and he yeah. got right back to me. Uh, he uses 16 gauge on those one by three. Okay. All right. So it is a little bit thinner than the 14 gauge, but because it's the one by three, I'm assuming it just has more heft. Yeah, I think there's there is something about are you using round pipe or are you using yeah we're pipe? using yeah we're using round the regular so top rail. I think because it's three inches of straight metal, mm -hmm. you know, there's a reason two by fours are rectangular. Correct. Yeah. And having that three inches of wall like that is it really is something. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think oval is probably the best. I mean, that's why so many companies use oval. Correct. Um, oval pipe but i think compared to round pipe it's it's exponential mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think i mean yeah i don't know the engineering i've i know norm at multi-shelter claimed that rectangular was the best and i know of course harnois and other people claim oval is um well oval would use less steel because of the rounding of the corners technically mm -hmm. it probably mm -hmm. like probably like eight or 12 percent less steel but right. um and it's probably a little bit easier to bend but i don't really yeah. know 
It, 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 it definitely yeah. is something we really should have a deep mastermind on greenhouse structures and try to get some of these engineers in the room and talk to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. Joining me is Ariel from the Real Organic Project. Ariel, welcome. Thank you. So Ariel, tell us a little bit about what the Real Organic Project stands for. Yeah, so the Real Organic Project is a farmer-led nonprofit uh, that manages an add-on certification for certified organic. And the whole idea is we want to give farmers that are doing things the right way within the spirit of the rules a way to differentiate themselves from some of the corporate organic on supermarket shelves that only meets the most cynical definition of something that would actually be organic. So what that means is we're only working with farms that are growing their crops in healthy, biologically active soil, as opposed to growing hydroponically. And we're only working with farms that are raising their animals with real access to the outdoor and pastures, as opposed to these confinement operations, which again, unfortunately, are dominating the organic sections of many of our supermarkets. But Michael, I know you're actually interested in potentially pursuing real organic project certification for your farm. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about why why that's of interest to you? Yeah, I've always been a big proponent of the Real Organic Project because they stand for what I stand for. You know, the feeling about putting the organic back in the ecosystem of the farm. I mean, the problem when you have this corporate organic is that it's been watered down to lowest common denominator. You know, frequently there's more plastic than plants in some of these systems. Um, Real organic is more about caring about those who care about the soil. And, um, you know, going back to that original idea of why we farm organically, which is, you know, we want the birds to be singing in the background and the, the soil to be alive and the earthworms. And when you look at some of these corporate organic, it's just as sterile as um, the conventional farms that we're competing with. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really well put. And I think what we really want to do is find a way to uplift and differentiate the folks that are genuinely doing things the right way for the right reasons and not just finding the simplest, easiest way to check a bunch of boxes. Mm, absolutely. And if folks want to find out more about the Real Organic Project, you can go to realorganicproject.org forward slash thriving farmer. That's realorganicproject.org forward slash thriving farmer. All right, let's keep moving on. Let's talk a little bit about your um, soil fertility program. Like, how are you keeping things fueled? Great question. Um, we do a bunch of different things. So we have two parallel production systems with totally different fertility regimes. And now we're kind of playing on reintroducing a third. Um, on three acres, we do sort of classic uh, tarp, 100 foot beds, mm-hmm. you know, um, lots of purchased weed free compost. And we've used, you know, pelletized chicken manure and other amendments. Now, because of phosphorus and potassium rising, we're, we're just using feather meal. Uh-huh. So that's that's half of the production system. So that's right now, as we speak, that's where we do all our direct seeded crops. And then we have a roughly three acres of biotello plastic with uh, a legume grass cover crop planted in between. Mm. On those crops, we do our we do our beds eight feet on center, and we have a 180 bushel manure spreader that conveniently has eight foot on center or almost eight foot on center wheel width. So it 
makes our measuring nice. And we uh -huh. have a hood built on that manure spreader that can shoot compost straight down into a windrow, you know, a, 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 makes a, a row of compost about yep. three feet wide and about four inches thick or three inches thick. Or I should say, I'll, I'll say that three feet wide and one to three inches thick. Okay. Yep. And one 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 uh, load of it can do a four hundred foot row. Okay. So in that production system, we buy uh, sheep, cow, and horse manure, and sort of roughly compost it, and then put down one four hundred foot row of compost after another in the spring. Lightly till it, add a little bit of feather meal or poultry manure, depending on soil test. Um. And then layer of plastic over that. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. We first will either spade it or sea tine, sea uh, tine harrow it. We have a um, a nine foot wide sea tine harrow that we can um, rip down about ten inches, maybe a foot deep, or we can spade it. We have a seven foot wide spader if we want to go down deeper, or sort of just depends on on the state of affairs. Um, and then yeah, then we'll lightly rototill with a six foot tiller. And then layer plastic, and then uh -huh. as soon as we lay the plastic, we plant uh, red or white clover and sometimes annual ryegrass in between the rows. Power hair that in with a with a um, walking tractor, uh -huh. and then we just mow the strips with a flail mower. And so we're building fertility on about sixty percent of our field surface every year, uh -huh. and we're able to continually crop really fragile sloped sandy soil and build organic matter every year. Okay. So, so that's, that, those that, are our two systems. That annual ryegrass you use in there, is that something that sometimes you're used, sometimes you won't? Is it later in the season because you don't want it to seed? What's the, how, what makes yeah. you say yes or no with that? We're experimenting. Um, okay. I would want to, you know, in my mind, it just makes sense to have a more diverse mix in between the rows. Yeah. The annual ryegrass can be tricky because it can suppress the clover. Okay. Um, I've tried actually using fall rye in the spring. And depending on how cool the spring is, that sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. And sometimes I find just the pure clover actually makes a better stand um, by the end of the season. I find the ryegrass will grow sometimes too vigorously, but then doesn't stand up to the mowing enough. Mm. But it suppressed the clover. And then by the fall, we have uh, bare ground that's filling in with weeds mm. or unwanted grasses, like perennial grasses. Yep. Where if we can get a pure clover stand and mow it a lot, we'll end up with this unbelievably thick, weed free um, mat that's super nice to harvest on. And, you know, I feel is yeah. you know, fixing nitrogen, making organic matter. And um, that that seems to be where we want to end. Uh -huh. Okay. So then, all right. So you're putting down clover between, and then I'm assuming on this, you're growing things like onions, leeks, that sort of thing. Pretty Kale, much, yeah. Chard. Everything, everything transplanted that isn't super quick turnaround. So we do paper pot, fennel, green onions, of course, like, you know, salano, you know, one yeah. cut lettuce, head lettuce. Uh, we'll kohlrabi, you know, you can guess those things. Um, so we'll paper pot a lot of that stuff. 
and then pretty much everything that's hand transplanted. So this would be, you know, all the solanaceous mm-hmm. crops, the cucurbits, brassicas, get transplanted into the biotella. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, one weeding around the holes and we're generally good for weed control. And then we have a, a Grillo walking tractor with a, a bird, a flail mower. And we can keep the inter, you know, the, the paths mode. It's, it's work, but it's definitely, I, I feel like the cost benefit is very good on that. And then we're cover cropping our field, you know, 60% of our field is in cover crop every year and we're getting awesome yields out of it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty nice. With zero cool. erosion. And we're like right over this really fragile estuary with yeah. sandy, sandy loam soil on some pretty, you know, with slopes. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, when we were, when we were row cropping that, I definitely would get some unfortunate erosion. And yeah. I was like, this must stop. Yeah. So but, then that allows you to, because clovers t- typically pretty easy to terminate as well, allows you to take out exactly what you need yeah. to prep for the next time. Totally. And, and since we're, so then the following year, I'll, you know, give it some tillage and then immediately lay the compost and lay plastic again and plant clover again. And, you know, we can get away with some pretty light termination action because Mm -hmm. the clover that doesn't get killed ends up finding itself under plastic. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's, not super robust. And say every 400 foot row, we might have zero to 10 clover plants grow up through a hole where a crop mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. who cares yeah yeah or even yeah. even if there was 20 in a 400 foot row of leaks or whatever that are you know three three rows leaks you yeah. know three inches apart we're talking untold thousands of leaks and there's a few clover plants growing up correct yeah great yeah. who cares Let's let's talk about your climate battery. So to talk to us a little bit about you mentioned to me that you, this this technology I think came out of Colorado or the company that was really pushing it was out of Colorado. Yeah, that's right. So um, well, there was two different outfits. There's a guy who has a book about it where he has a permaculture greenhouse with all kinds of really cool, I think semi-tropical plants, Tompkins, Thomas, something like that. I think he was the originator. Okay. Another company, Saris Greenhouse Designs, um, Saris Greenhouse Solutions, got onto it and adapted it or used it for cannabis production. Mm, okay. And is building, you know, very, very expensive, super insulated uh, cannabis greenhouses with really, really big climate batteries, like the whole footprint. Wow. Concrete foundation, four inch foam insulation yeah. on the perimeter. Lots and lots of fans, you know, probably several hundred dollars a square foot. I don't know. Yeah. Huge. So the first greenhouse we built, we didn't have proper drainage to daylight. And the water just infiltrated into our climate battery excavation and filled up. So then we had to rent a mini excavator, dig a drain underneath the structure of the greenhouse sort of do some landforming, get it so that we could have drainage out to grade, put in a pipe, backfilled it with crushed clear stone, sort of bit, did a bit of filter filter fabric wrapping with old row cover mm-hmm. and got the thing to drain. We actually were able to drain the first one after the fact. When we built the second greenhouse, we chose higher ground. 
where we could go down 10 feet and make drainage to daylight from the get-go. Wow. So what we did is we used a laser level. We made the whole bottom of the greenhouse of the climate battery tip to one side. Uh-huh. We put a perforated six inch sewer pipe on the low end of that tipped bottom. And then that went into an elbow into a solid sewer pipe that went out to a, to a, you know, following a grain yeah. out to the surface. Then we put a foot of clear stone over the whole bottom of the greenhouse before we put any pipes down. Then we put two layers of used row cover down. Then we put our first layer of climate battery, you know, air circulation pipes down. Did that. Then we put row cover down. Then we backfilled with dirt. Then we did another layer, mm. row cover, backfilled with dirt, another layer, row cover, backfilled with dirt. That greenhouse has stayed bone dry. Mm. I like the uh, row cover usage because we all yeah, have extra I mean, row cover. Row cover is filter fabric, right? Yeah. Like it's just thin filter yeah. fabric. So if you use two layers of it, mm-hmm. I think it's going to stop the silt. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So a big thing with, with a climate battery to consider is that you have this perforated pipe full of air buried and you know there's going to be moisture going through that soil profile and especially in a place like us where we have a lot of silt in our soil you know once that silt gets into the climate battery pipes it's very hard to get out mm-hmm. there's, there's no way to flush it out there's you're just blowing air through there's no water flow it's a perforated pipe you can't flood it and flush it even if you wanted to really so it's just really makes sense to do it right the first time. We also, I should note, we use a filter sock on each um, climate battery pipe. Okay. So there, it has its own filter sock. And then we're also putting the row cover over the whole thing. Oh, wow. Okay. And you yeah. went 10 feet down. Yeah, 10. So we have three rows in our second greenhouse. It's 10, eight, and six feet down. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We were going to, we were really heavily considering it for this latest house that we're actually putting up this year, but uh, we are on, on um, uh, basically river run, uh, well, sand and gravel after you get below two feet. Mm. And my excavator said, well, the problem is if we put that in and then we build a greenhouse right over it, you're basically building that greenhouse on disturbed soil. And because when on river run, basically everything, when you start getting down, it starts to just the, the sides of the, the pit just collapse. And he said, yeah. by the time we got down to eight feet, you'd be well past the width. And so to do this here, we're going to have to, I mean, first we don't get anywhere near as cold or have anywhere near as long as winters as you do. We had let yeah. us yeah. go all winter with not a stitch of heat and survive just fine. Um, so yeah. we don't, technically need it i mean it's nice it would increase growth but we don't technically need it so we may just stick with the gas heat when we when we actually realized um that we'd yeah. have to wait a year to put the the climate battery we have to wait a year after put the climate battery in to put the house up over it yeah i think um i had a discussion with a grower in missouri about this okay and i think climate batteries really make sense when the difference between winter air temperature and ground temperature is the greatest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. You know, the, I don't know. I don't know how, what your ground temperature is in the winter, but it's probably not that much cold or warmer than mine. That's probably, because, yeah, it's not. And yet my air temperatures are often way warmer, colder. I mean, yes, 
Yeah. So like yeah. we had a Arctic blast this winter where we, it was, uh, it was minus 40 with Celsius with the wind chill, which is close to minus 40 Fahrenheit. Wow. Let's say it was something like minus 30 something Fahrenheit. Yeah. Yeah. And we were able to have pretty tender stuff like arugula seedlings that are just in the cotyledon stage and all sorts of stuff over winter in our climate batter greenhouses with no row cover. Wow. And no, no supplemental heat. Yeah. Yeah. Now this, so now, like, yeah. You know, but you don't get cold like that. Yeah. So. But we had to keep that lettuce alive. We did put three layers of covers on. So we did have to, yeah. and I hate row covers. So, um, <laughs> yeah. That climate yeah. battery is very attractive, but it also is yeah. pretty easy just to flick on the natural gas and realize I'm spending, you know, six bucks a night to keep it alive. Yeah. Which, yeah. If I had natural gas, that would be very tempting. Yeah. yeah. Um, very cool. So then with the climate battery greenhouse, you have uh, how many square feet of, of, of green, of battery greenhouse do you have then? Uh, roughly 9,000 square feet. Okay. Between the two houses. Yeah. Um, and the only, I mean, the only thing I find that seems to be a little frustrating about them is those pipes do come up right through your bed. So you have to oh, plant around them. It's poison. I hate it. Okay. Yeah, so that is the annoying. worst part. Oh, so annoying. <laughs> Super awkward, but you get used to it, you know, yeah. you get used to it. And like, we're planting tomatoes. Uh, well, I, I think the crew actually did it today. We're planting yeah. tomatoes this week you know, and that's like a month earlier than we normally would be able to. Yeah. So when you do that, you're like, yeah, that's, that's worth it. Mm -hmm. But um, mm -hmm. yeah. So then with that, that obviously all that goes through your retail store, which is in Halifax, give us a little bit of an overview of that. Yeah. That's been actually in many ways, the most surprising and wonderful part of this farming journey we've been on uh, over the last 10 years. Um, we were doing a CSA distribution in a city park for five mm -hmm. years where once mm -hmm. a week we'd set up a, a tent and we were renting the park and told the city what we were doing of doing a CSA distribution. And they said, well, let's call that a public picnic. Okay. And then it kind of grew. And then the customers just walking by wanted to buy stuff. So we kind of sold stuff. And over five years, it became a one vendor farmer's market. And we didn't really think about it much. And then one day the city was like, you're running a farmer's market without permission on public land. You can't do that. Oh. And we got shut down. And it was wow. actually our last CSA distribution week of the year when we got shut down. It was kind of perfect. Yeah. And just then a friend of ours had rented some office space in this old uh, auto mechanics garage building in a sort of rapidly gentrifying, but pretty rough part mm. of uh, Halifax. And we thought, well, it's on a non-commercial street. It's just this a quiet residential street that had quite a lot of drug dealing activity on it. Mm. Really ramshackle houses, just was rough. Yeah. But the neighborhood was kind of four to eight story condo towers are being built all in that neighborhood. Mm. And we thought, you know what? we have a customer base, we have a 200 chair CSA, let's just go there and it's cheap and it's undercover and you know, let's just make this happen. And it has this wonderful garage door that opens up to this little parking lot. It's cool. Mm. So we start use, renting this building and using it just one day a week. 
And immediately we realized that we had something really special on our hands and that people wanted a funky farmer owned midweek outlet for local food. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it just started growing exponentially with no real business plan other than just an, an easy place to do our CSA distribution. Mm-hmm. And it's just grown year after year after year. We went from one day a week to three days a week. And then when COVID hit, everyone else was going online. Mm-hmm. And my contrary nature, I was kind of like, I don't want to go online. I want to expand my hours. Mm. So during COVID, we doubled down. We like, started you know another day a week and we just started buying food from all of our friends who sold at farmers markets that were shut down and all the people selling to restaurants that were shut down and so for us covid was a time of just intense forward-facing public engagement and Mm -hmm. um, sometimes people there'd be like a big line to get into our building because health regulations made us limit it to only three people at a time in our store Mm-hmm. And sometimes there'd be a, a line wrapping around the block with, you know, an hour wait to get into our store. Wow. And I would just sit there in, you know, March and April of 2020, um, peeling leaks in the parking lot and talking to people. Yeah. yeah. I just sit there. I'd just like sit there and like peel leaks and sort carrots and just chat with people in line and be like, Hey, we're here for you. You know? Mm-hmm. And that I think really changed our business. And mm-hmm. then when the regulations kind of came down, I was kind of wondering if we'd go back down to our 2019 sales levels, but we didn't. We've been able to maintain and slowly grow our customer awesome. base. Yeah. yeah. So then with that, um, with that store, how many square feet approximately is it? It's it's about a thousand square feet. We okay. have um, a lot of, we have two walk-in coolers that have glass display doors so we can mm-hmm. sell greens and we have like raw organic milk and fish and meat we're, we're in partnership with a really great pastured meat producer mm. so abundant acres and Holdenka farm do it together and um, he's rotationally grazing about 250 acres of land to do like you know all the species yeah and you know on-farm processing he's doing everything right so we yeah. have all this beautiful meat and then we work with a sustainable seafood producer so we have all the seafood and then we have several bakeries and honey and maple syrup and flowers and you know, all that yeah. stuff. And then, so we got all that along the wall. And in the middle, we have this big wooden display thing where we sell the produce that doesn't need to be refrigerated. Yeah. On one side is all of our local organic or unsprayed, you know, certified naturally grown, whatever, all that stuff on one side. On the other side, we import certified organic produce. Yeah. So this is like, a, this was a real uh, departure for us, you know, as sort of local food people. We decided, no, this isn't going to just be a local food store. This is going to be a green grocer, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. one-stop shop. So we have avocados and hothouse tomatoes and, you know, whatever it is that people want, we have the best selection of organic produce in town on the other side, very clearly separated. Yeah. And then we have another rack where we have local conventional produce. So gotcha. we'll bring in sweet corn that's sprayed. Yeah. And we have a guy who's quite low spray. He uses about 10% of the inputs that normally people do. Mm-hmm. And we'll have that on yet another display. So it's like, this is the import organic. This is the local organic ecological, and this is the local conventional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we people can make their choice. And, and so, yeah. And we have all the different price points, everything really li- clearly labeled. 
And that's been amazing. And like, we'll get like, you know, a 20 something year old guy come in and he's like, I'm looking for a red pepper. And it's like February. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, here it is. And then I'll be like, yeah, this is, this is a pepper from Mexico. <laughs> what are yeah. you cooking? And he's like, well, my girlfriend's coming over. I'm making her an omelet. And I'm like, have you ever tried overwintered red Russian kale? <laughs> like, what is that? And I'm like, yeah, come over here. I grew this myself. This comes from my backyard. See those flower buds? They taste like the best broccoli you've ever had. Just Mm. saute this and put it in your omelet. You can forget about the red pepper. Mm. And then like two weeks later, I'll see the same guy and he's like, dude, my girlfriend went nuts for those greens. I need more. Yeah. And then before you know it, he signed up for a CSA. Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's the converting people to what real local food can taste like. Yeah. So it's kind Um, of like part of my shtick is I actually like put down the imported produce in yes, my own store that you're selling. <laughs> that I'm selling. So it kind of gives me like, it's not like I'm just railing about the system and like yeah. you know, the big supermarkets. I'm like, we do this because people want this, but what I really believe in and what I think tastes way better and is a better value is this. Yeah. And yeah. Um, it's been a very effective thing. And yet when people want a red pepper, they, they want a red get, pepper yeah. and they come and, you know, that's what their kid eats in their lunchbox and mm-hmm. they get it. And yeah. we make money on it. So yeah. Kind of, uh, yeah. I've become a man of compromises in my older years. <laughs> Never 25 year old David would have been horrified that I'm doing this. Well, but you know, I, I think I've kind of been on a similar journey too, because, you know, when we started farming in upstate New York, we were farming 14 acres of vegetables doing, you know, 150 different varieties. And it was a lot of work. Um, and we were at a farmer's market, you know, three farmers, four farmers markets a week. Um, but, you know, I was talking to Brian Dennison, who I think is probably one of the, and I've tried to get on the podcast, but he is a man of few words. And um, <laughs> I think he doesn't, that's just not his thing. But I would say he's still one of the best growers that I have um, run into because just the quality of the vegetables that come off his farm were just incredible. Um, but he was like, yeah, he said, we as farmers are basically making it harder for ourselves. All of us growing, you know, this incredible diversity he said everyone should focus on what they're best at. And yeah. you know, the longer I farm, the more I know that certain soils grow better things. Like here in Ohio, our soils just where we are, our soil right here is just not great for sweet potatoes. Now mm-hmm. we grow fabulous strawberries, we grow fabulous lettuce, we grow fabulous so many other crops, but sweet potatoes just isn't, it's not quite light enough. And I know there are farmers a little cl- close to me that do actually have pretty good success with sweet potatoes on heavier soils, but for some reason ours isn't, doesn't grow well. Um but I think, you know, really thinking about that and trying to focus on what you're good at and then, you know, realizing there's a whole farm community and yeah, some of those farms might not be super local. And again, we definitely want to focus on the super local, but I think we're in a bigger ecosystem of food and trying to like, understand that and bringing in some of those is, is not a bad idea sometimes. Totally. Yeah. And that's been a huge part of the evolution of our farm is that, you know, and we're doing a, we're doing a 350 share CSA this year mm. and we're just buying in more and more stuff from our friends. Yeah. So like we have a problem with carrot rust fly on our farm, which means we have to row cover our carrots pretty much from the day of planting or from emergence. Yeah. Which is just a total pain for cultivation, of course. Mm. And then I have a friend who grows 20 acres of certified organic carrots. He has a one row digger. He's got a vacuum seeder. He's mm-hmm. got lots of land for rotation and no carrot rust fly. Yeah. 
his carrots are better than mine. Oh, and he has incredible uh, storage. Yeah. So it's like, you know, why in the world would I not just buy them from him? Yeah, exactly. Let him focus on what he does best. Totally. And then we can grow the fiddly crops that he's not interested in. Yeah. Yeah. And do a larger CSA and have, really great product and we already have the distribution location i should say something about the warehouse market that i forgot that i just wanted to loop back to if you don't mind Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah um so we do total free choice uh on our csa so you sign up for different sizes it's you know like six nine or 12 items a week okay and we just say you can take up to one item of fruit and then you know, either five, seven or, or 11 items of produce. And we just have a green dot on each item that's available for the CSA with either Mm -hmm. like a court symbol or a bunch symbol. And we kind of have a little way for people to know how much they take. Mm -hmm. And then people take whatever they want. You know, so if someone loves beet greens, they want to have big, big beet feast, they can take five bunches. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we also have four days a week for them to, to pick it up. Our, our market's open only four days a week. Gotcha. So they have total choice of time and, and item. And off the same shelf, we're retailing. And the secret, I think, to why the warehouse market worked so well for retailing, this is like actually the nugget that I mm-hmm. forgot to mention, mm-hmm. is that selling produce retail is really difficult if you're trying to compete with farmers markets for customers who want farm fresh produce straight out of the land. What, and I think the essence of it is when you go to a busy farmer's market and things like lettuce and chard and kale are piled high and they're dripping wet because they were just taken out of a bin mm-hmm. and they're still cold, but they're not encased in plastic in a reach-in free cooler, but they're just mm-hmm. fresh and they're mm-hmm. just feeling and you can look at them you can pull that off at a farmer's market where you're selling thousands of dollars of product in four hours. Correct. Pull that off in a multi-day midweek retail store is insanely difficult. Yeah. And so how we did it is we started off by only being open one day a week with 200 free choice CSA customers coming in one day. So it pushed the volume. Pushed the volume to the point where every time someone walked by our little market, there was probably two to 10 people picking up produce mm-hmm. and they're just like reaching for the stuff. And we're just madly throwing it on the shelf as fast as we can. Yeah. And people see that and their instinct is, Oh, this is where the good stuff is. Like, what is this place? I want some. Mm-hmm. And then immediately we started picking up customers mm-hmm. to the point where we're doing, you know, $10,000 a day of business in a new business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then we, opened up to three days a week and then until, and then we, it, it, there was a bit of a lag, but we increased our CSA and then that was busy. And then we went to four and we haven't gone to five yet mm-hmm. because we're keeping it to the point where it's always busy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we're just putting stuff on the shelf and it's wet and cold and being bought and we're putting more out. Of course, that's really efficient for labor too. Oh yeah. But I think oh, a yeah. lot of business people with a with a storefront might think, well, I should be open seven days a week. I already have all these fixed overhead costs. And it's the same rent. Mm-hmm. You know, so much of the admin costs are, are fixed. All I have to do is 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 um, hire more staff. 
-hmm. and it pencils out. But then what you end up with is either limp stuff sitting outside or mm -hmm. you end up with uh, coolers with stuff in plastic yeah. behind glass. And then it just looks like, I don't know what this is. I have no idea how fresh this is. I don't want it. I'm going to go to farmer's market. Yeah. 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 So that's been, that's been like the, 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 the different thing that we've done. So we've used CSA to create farmer's market levels of volume for a midweek retail store. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's course, really interesting. Super, super easy way to do a CSA too. Cause we have almost no complaints. Yeah. No one. No one has to wonder about if they're going to like this week's basket. There's no one saying, can you tell me what's coming up next week? I need to do meal yeah. planning. They just know they're going to get what they want. So that's interesting because this year we are allowing people to do that model and we're still signing mm -hmm. up three pre-boxed to one free choice. Now they, and they're in their pre-box, they do get, uh, they, we use a Farmigo, which we do not like mm -hmm. as a software. Um, but we do, uh, allow them total free choice there too. So they do get choice. Right. It's just a little bit more expensive. So they're saving a couple bucks a week if they pick it themselves right. out of the store. But, um, it's interesting that still people, they still want that bag. And this is interesting because this is a, we are trying to cater our entire business model to the young mom. Well, not the entire business, but a major demographic of who we're trying to reach is the young mom who is very busy. Again, we know that if we can get mm -hmm. them, then their kids are going to start eating healthier and getting, we know that when kids develop healthy eating habits at a young age, they're going to keep those for much longer. So our thing is like, how do we focus on, again, this is like a pivotal, pivotal point in basically, <laughs> if you really think about it, humanity as a, as a, as a species, you know, what, what, where's the, where can we hit them and get the most, um, you know, change and yeah. what that mom said, she came onto the, our bus, which is our retail store right now. And she said, oh, I just have no idea what I want to cook this week. She said, I'm going to go back to the bag because that way I can sit on my phone and pick what I know, what I can plan for that week. And so we're like, aha. That's the difference right there. So anyway, it was fascinating yeah, for us. And every, you know, the cool thing about this is, you know, both of us are running businesses and we have very different ways of doing it. And it's both seems to be working. Yeah. It's really interesting about that too. I think if you didn't give choice mm. and your boxes were pre-made, then everyone would want the, Correct. the, 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 the free choice thing. Um, I think the the Farmigo model is tremendously uh, attractive, especially to maybe, you know, the busy moms. Yes. I, I kind of seeing where you are, like in between like Dayton and Cincinnati or something. Correct. Yeah. We're in like a super hipster urban mm. environment where like yes. a lot of our customers are like graphic designers with big beards and tattoos who like mm -hmm. watch cooking shows. Yes. Yeah. 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 So different demographic, different, different vibe. Yeah. 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 Very, Very different. And we have lots of young moms too. Like sometimes yeah. there's three strollers lined up in our store, you know, with like toddlers everywhere. I love it. Yes. Um, yeah. Different, but it is, it is more of an urban hipster kind of scene. Yeah. Very. And they cool. want to like find exactly the romaine lettuce they want. Like, the, oh exactly. yeah. Yeah. They're going to pick yeah. through four or five of them because they want the specific one. Yeah. Our people aren't at that level yet. Now, again, we, our goal is to keep attracting that type of people, but um, yeah. we do now, have, yeah. That said, if we did farm ago, we could probably pick up hundreds more customers. I mean, yeah. for sure. 
Okay. Yeah. yeah. Super interesting to see how, yeah, similar yeah. businesses solve the same problem radically different ways. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. David, before we go, is there anything else you'd like to share with us? I know we we actually probably could go on for another hour or two. I but... <laughs> so talking with you. I want to know more about your farm. I want to know about your strawberries. Um, actually, the the other thing that I think is significant about our farm is the way we delegate responsibility to our crew. Mm, yeah. Um, so getting back to that uh, radical hippie free school I went to, I kind of was just in my DNA is this idea of trusting people, mm-hmm. giving people the freedom to make mistakes and learn from it and sort of have self-determination. And I just find that's really just core to a lot of people's nature, you know, like especially in farming that we attract quirky, independent people who want to think and mm-hmm. want to have agency in their life. And that's, that's the, those are the people I want to be surrounded with. So what we do is we, we delegate responsibility on the farm and really delegate it. So we have someone who does all the direct seeding mm-hmm. and she has very little supervision for me. She comes to me if she has a question, which she very rarely does. We have someone in charge of seedlings. The seedling person and the direct seeding person do the crop plan together. Mm. They do it from start to finish. And then I just look at it and ask questions or they'll shoot me little messages Mm-hmm. but they do it. They sit down and do it. And I am, Jen and I will just give a little bit of feedback in the beginning. We'll look at the notes they take through the season and they'll reassess it and do it again. Um, I still do some of the seed ordering just cause I love it. And mm-hmm. Whatever the experience is worth it. Um, but yeah, land preparation, irrigation, weed control, everything. Someone isn't responsible for each one of those things. Mm-hmm. And um, we are super, super hands-off. Um, same, we have a management team at our store that does almost all the decision-making, ordering mm-hmm. the produce, setting the schedule, um, even setting prices. We, we, we trust people to do all that. And um, it's, it's been really good for employee retention, I think for employee satisfaction. And you know, for the right people, it's, it's an amazing opportunity. And for Jen mm-hmm. and I, it just, it's given us so much freedom. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, that's great. Yeah. And we probably could have a whole hour just on employees because you do have a, a sizable team as well. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I think that's, you know, that's kind of the, we used to, again, I think businesses as they age, they tend to hire differently. And I'm at this stage mm-hmm. where I want to hire um, pros and let mm-hmm. them do their job. Um, yeah expert, expert, expert employees, as we like to call it, you know, people, oh, again, you can, yeah, you can go after the 12, $15 an hour, but I, you're managing them. And I, I, I'm, I have enough, I have, well, I have enough businesses, but B, I have enough things I'm interested in <laughs> that I don't just want to be running around, um, you know, in managing people all day. I just want to say, Hey, this is the, this is where we want to head. And this is how I think we should get there. Let me know what your thoughts are and then free them up to go do it. Yeah. It's really, it's a wonderful place to be. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, thank you so much, David, for coming on and I'm sure we'll chat again. Okay. Thanks for having me. Take care. All right. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. Real Organic Project is a farmer-led movement that provides an add-on certification held by over a thousand certified organic family-owned operations across North America. 
Real Organic Project strives to uplift farms working within the spirit, not just the letter, of organic principles. Real Organic certified farmers use practices that are centered around the foundational organic principles of soil-based crop production and pasture-based livestock agriculture. To remain accessible to all types of farmers, Real Organic Project fundraises year-round to keep this certification available at no cost to farmers. You can apply today at realorganicproject.org forward slash thriving farmer. That is realorganicproject.org forward slash thriving farmer. The current application season ends soon, so be sure to apply today. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.